Hi, Mary, you're back. So how was your trip? Skiing? Work out okay? Yeah, it did. So uh, yeah, we we did make it there, which was nice. And oh, it was just wonderful. I think anyone who's been skiing and, and enjoyed it will probably know the feeling. But I actually feel like you sort of, you know, you enjoy it, but you forget just how much you enjoy it. And then that first day when you're sort of out on the slopes and you're like, oh, yeah, this is the life. This is great. So and our first day was sunny, which helped as well. Oh, lovely. So, yeah. And f- f- first skiing for a couple of years then. So you, so it all, it all came back to you, did it? You don't, no, no issues. Yeah. And you know what? I actually wonder if I lost some gremlins from having a little break because it felt like I got back into it quicker than I might otherwise usually do. That all we were skiing with friends that went relatively fast. So you just had to keep up one or the other. <laughs> Cool. So talk, talk us through some of the highlights. So sunny days, food, good. Sunny days. We, we actually had a combination of sunny days and really thick snow. And as a snowboarder, nice. that is just a dream. So um, yeah. And yeah, food, amazing. Probably ate a kilo of cheese every day, I think. And is this, we're talking raclette here, fondue. What are we talking? We're mainly talking raclette. Yeah, raclette and kind of tartiflette type thing. So, you know, like oh, nice. potato yeah. with cheese yep. all over it, that, that yep. sort of stuff. Yeah. And the cheesiest cheese on toast I've probably ever had in my life halfway up a mountain, which was oh, lovely. excellent. You weren't quite there at the start of the Winter Olympics then, right? Because, yeah, you were there a bit before, but was there a bit of build up to that sort of to some extent? Yeah, there was a bit. So, yeah, you're right. We came home just before the Winter Olympics started. I think there's always a bit of live action somewhere in the world, isn't there? So there was there was stuff on while we were there, but not locally. But where we skied is the... I think it's the location of the World Cup, Ski World Cup. So we skied the downhill course a few times, which was good fun, which the friends we were with have, have seen live and mm. were saying about how much faster everyone goes on. <laughs> when it's, uh, how much easier it looks sorry. on TV for some reason. Yeah, and, and how they all sort of just do a jump around one of the corners. Yeah. Sort of thinking this looks like, you know, neck breaking stuff, but yeah, yeah. All, all good and, and nice to ski on good quality snow so we yeah. actually it was pretty good it. thing you did go before the winter olympics because you spend too long watching those downhill races you might get a little bit carried away when you get yourself on the slopes for the first time in two years i know we were watching some of the giant slalom last night and just it's just terrifying actually how it's, fast they go it's full on isn't it it's full yeah. on final question then from me <laughs> pros and cons of switzerland versus other countries to go skiing in would you say do you know what i really enjoyed it so i thought switzerland would be stupidly expensive actually was wasn't horrendous versus France and just everything works so we flew to Zurich we got the train to Wengen two and a half three hours it just works like the the connection Swiss trains some of the trains the the connection was three minutes and you think oh my god we're going to definitely miss it because in the UK you would and actually they've just thought about it they've thought about which platform you come in on which platform you're going to go out on they've made it as easy as possible and none of the trains are ever late ever so actually yeah very very good experience I'd say Love it. Swiss trains. Can't beat it. Indeed. (laughs) Should we do do this? Yeah, absolutely. On with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we are talking about something that I think goes really underappreciated, but it's a really important right and role that investors and asset owners have, and that's voting, voting at company AGMs. And joining us for a conversation today about a really interesting piece of research that she recently authored is the head of financial sector research at ShareAction, Sonia Hirtzic. Sonia, welcome. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome, Sonia. Before we kick off with the main meat of the discussion, could you give the listeners a feel for what your role is at Share Action and actually maybe slightly more broadly what Share Action does? Share Action is a responsible investment charity. We assess financial institutions' approach to responsible investment and make recommendations for improvement. So we see ourselves as kind of like a critical friend. We also run a number of investor coalitions, which engage with companies on topics like climate change, health and the living wage. And we do some policy work as well to promote better regulation on responsible investment, both at UK and EU level. And in terms of my role, so I oversee ShareAction's financial sector research team and our various research outputs. So that includes our benchmarks of financial institutions where we rank asset managers, banks and insurance companies based on their performance on key ESG issues. We also publish regular leading practice reports where we highlight case studies of institutions that are doing particularly well on a specific topic and hopefully provide others with some concrete inspiration for next steps that they could take. And then the other piece of recurring research we do is our annual voting analysis, which we're going to discuss today, where we look at how some of the world's largest asset managers vote on key environmental and social resolutions each proxy season. Great. Yeah, we're going to get into all that in just a second. And I guess, I mean, you've been running that sort of report for quite a while now, isn't it? I guess it's just got a lot more attention in the last few years. Is that fair? Yes, that's right. So this is the third edition. Cool. Um, Sonia, before we get into it all, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? I think maybe I'll say that in my free time, you can quite often find me in the gym. I really enjoy powerlifting, which until a few years ago is not something I ever thought I would say. But about four years ago, my partner really got me into it and now I love it. But yeah, of course, sadly, over the last couple of years, there were some disruptions to this with COVID and gyms closing. But I'm really happy at the moment to be back at it again now. Cool. Fantastic. You got a particular preferred lift? It's your favourite? I love back squats. <laughs> I don't even know what they look like. <laughs> I'm really coming to this from the dark. And is it sort of classes with other people or is it quite a solo, your own personal improvement that's the focus? Usually I just go on my own and just really like having that time doing something completely different from what I usually do in my day to day. It's your own version of mindfulness, which I completely get. So yeah, having that headspace is really important, isn't it? It is kind of like that because you really need to focus and put all of your attention just on the lift. So yeah, it is kind of similar. Brilliant. Cool. Okay, Sonia, let's get into talking about this research piece and we'll put a link to it in the show notes so listeners can read it all. We'll go into the key findings in a sec. But first, I think whenever I'm talking to someone who's actually written a research piece, I always like to ask the question to start with why. Can you give us some background on why this research piece? What's the reason behind it? What are you sort of getting at here? As we all know, society is facing a number of existential risks and challenges at this point in time. Greenhouse gas concentrations are at record levels. We're still on track for more than two degrees of warming. We're also experiencing extremely high rates of biodiversity loss. And the social inequality crisis continues to grow as well and has been exacerbated by COVID. And the asset management sector has a vital role to play, I think, in helping society solve these existential challenges, both by allocating capital sustainably and by influencing corporate behaviour. And voting in particular is a really strong action that asset managers can take that sends a clear message to the company. It's one of the most important tools, I would say, that asset managers have at their disposal to influence corporate behaviour. So we do this research to assess the extent to which asset managers are indeed using this tool. And I guess also from a research point of view, it's quite nice to do this kind of analysis because it's very black and white. Either an asset manager supported the resolution or they didn't. So it can be easier to draw conclusions from that rather than reading through maybe lengthy policy documents or reporting and trying to analyse those. And who's your intended 
audience of the report, I appreciate it's probably very broad, but when you're putting the report together, have you got specific readers in mind for it? Yeah, I'd say two main audiences, obviously the main one being asset managers themselves, who will hopefully use that research to assess their own performance and compare themselves to peers, but then also asset owners who we hope will use the research to inform their engagement with their asset managers. You mentioned the sort of data side to it, and I can certainly see that there's a really nice data piece here, and it's quite amenable to that, which is great. But I wanted to discuss the methodology behind it just a little. So you selected something like 150 resolutions in particular, I think, from last year, and then you drilled into the manager voting on those. Do you want to speak a little bit to the thinking behind that methodology? You're right. We selected 146 resolutions that fed into asset manager scores and ranking. And we sourced those resolutions from Proxy Insight, which is a database on global shareholder voting, and also from the lists of organizations like ICCR, Series, and Proxy Review. And we excluded any resolutions that did not have readily accessible information on the filer or the wording, and also those that received less than 5% support, kind of as a way of filtering out resolutions that might not have been worth supporting. Maybe also worth saying in terms of asset managers, we selected the 20 largest asset managers globally based on assets under management, and then the 40 next largest European ones and the 15 next largest UK ones. So there's a slight European and UK tilt. Then we excluded any managers that are mainly focused on fixed income or alternative asset classes. And we also excluded those that had insufficient holdings in the relevant companies that we analyzed. So that meant that in the end, we ended up with 65 asset managers. Practically, how are you sourcing all the data here? You're asking the asset managers for how they voted or is that available from some other source or you're crunching through the corporate websites to look at it? How do you get hold of that stuff? Initially, data was sourced from the Proxy Insight database and then all of the managers were also contacted and invited to review that data and amend it where necessary or provide data where it was missing. In total, I think it was 49 out of the 65 assessed managers that got back to us and reviewed the data. And alongside the voting data, asset managers were also asked for their rationales to explain their voting decisions as well. This is probably really obvious, but just to really spell it out, that selection of managers, the idea of the sort of filtering process you use there being that they have the most weight in terms of influencing company resolutions because of them being much larger. Yes, exactly, because they're the largest ones. And then also, like I said, we made sure that they're mainly invested in the right asset classes as well and have exposure to the companies where we were actually looking at. And the managers that chose, well, what was it, 15 or so managers that didn't respond to the request to validate the data and didn't give you their rationale for the voting, do they sort of get a black mark somewhere in the scoring process? Is that reflected and is that then publicly made available? Or it seems to me that if they've not bothered to reply, that's a bad thing and maybe indicates they're not that engaged with all of this and maybe that is something that should be called out, but maybe I'm looking at that too simplistically. That's a really good point. I don't think we actually highlighted that in the ranking, but we usually do that for, so we also, like I mentioned earlier, conduct wider benchmarking that looks beyond voting, where we have a similar approach where we kind of pre-fill the questionnaire with publicly available data and then go to the relevant institutions we're serving to ask them to complete it. And for that, we usually do highlight who disclosed and who didn't. And maybe we should think about adopting the same approach for this report as well, because I agree asset managers should be transparent about it and they probably should be called out if they're not. But it's an interesting point that a lot of that data is available publicly anyway without having to go to the managers for it, which is, I suppose, quite nice. And in terms of the resolutions you selected, I mean, they were from a range of 
environmental, including climate, but not just climate, social issues, I think things like pay, diversity, health, and as well as governance. Was there a process that you went through to sort of find those or was it pretty much all of the resolutions that connected to those themes and met minimum criteria? That's right. It's all of the resolutions we could find that were related to those themes. And then we just used the criteria I mentioned before about excluding any that had less than 5% support, for example, to make sure that we don't include any that might have controversial wording or any that might not have been worth supporting. And the split between ES and G within those, you weren't going for 50-50-50, presumably you were just trying to get as many as you could. So is there a certain split this year? And I suppose also, is there a trend in what that's looked like over the last three years as you've been producing this report in a skew towards a certain area? Yeah, so there were more social resolutions than environmental resolutions. I think there were around 89 social resolutions and then 53 environmental resolutions. So yeah, kind of a bias towards social resolutions, but we just included all of them. And just quickly, more general background on resolutions, I suppose, just for the listeners. I've been doing some research into this myself recently, and it's kind of not always how you think. These resolutions are all global, aren't they? So they were across the world. So some of them are for US companies, some of them, I think, UK companies, European companies, so kind of the whole thing. And who files these resolutions, I guess, and why? Can you let us into a bit of the detail behind that? Most of these resolutions are filed in the US or Canada. I think it's just a lot more common for shareholder resolutions to be filed there, whereas for social and environmental resolution. It's still relatively new in other regions in Europe, for example. So although there were a few, it's a lot fewer compared to North America. In terms of the filers, it's actually usually relatively small shareholders who go ahead and file them. And then the larger ones might support them. But it's quite rare that the large asset managers themselves will file them. I think we found that only six asset managers in our sample had co-filed at least one of the resolutions that we looked at. And that is one thing I think from our conversations with asset managers that might be changing a little bit. Some managers are making it a policy to do a bit more of that, but others don't. I guess that's one thing that's always struck me as strange, that it's kind of down to these really small shareholders to put these things forward and then try and persuade the big players to sort of get on board with it. But that's just how the system tends to work, isn't it? Yeah, I think it really is. But I think it's encouraging to see that it seems to be something that's slowly starting to change. And as you say, more and more large asset managers are starting to integrate that into their policies as well. And hopefully we'll see more action over the next couple of years from the larger players as well. So should we talk about key findings then from the report? Sonia, do you want to just give us a sort of high level overview of some of the key points and we'll then maybe delve into the detail of a few of them? I think one of the key points we found was that voting activity had changed relatively little since the previous year that we'd looked at the similar data. So overall, asset managers had only improved by four percentage points on average. Some asset managers did show a large increase in voting performance. So, for example, Credit Suisse and Nordea increased their full votes by 61 percentage points, but the vast majority showed really minimal movement. I think it was 82% of asset managers common to our 2020 and 2021 assessments that showed a change of less than 20 percentage points. So despite a professed increase in ambition, I think most asset managers are not yet demonstrating concrete action on voting. I noticed that I think BlackRock was one of the ones that increased their percentage quite a lot as well. And I guess that that will be one that a lot of clients will be familiar with. And just to confirm on that percentage, so that really key number that you're looking at there, that's the overall percentage of those resolutions that they voted in favour of, right? Yes, that's right. And when I say the four percentage point increase, obviously, last year, we looked at slightly different resolutions, but they were on similar topics. So I think it's a fair comparison to make. 
that's the methodology challenge, isn't it? To try and make sure this is a fair comparison each year and it might not be perfect, but if you've got a big enough number, then hopefully it sort of is. And what is that number overall? It was sort of 30-ish percent on average, wasn't it? The support, is that right? So in terms of support, 32% of environmental resolutions received majority support. Just 15% of social resolutions received majority support. That is interesting in the current context, isn't it? So you mentioned there were more social resolutions than environmental in the last year. But there's clearly a very big emphasis on environmental in the industry generally. I don't know if I'm being too simple on this, but I'm not surprised that there was more support on the environmental ones. But maybe that's not quite the right way to think about it. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it seems a little bit strange because, yeah, as you say, there were more social resolutions. But I think it's probably just because a lot of the environmental resolutions were focused on climate change. And that's just been, I think, a bigger topic for a longer period of time, whereas social issues are perhaps still newer for a lot of asset managers. Yeah, that's right. I would have thought that a lot of managers have a quite developed policy now on climate and how they would vote on that, whereas those policies tend to be less fully formed on social so that maybe they don't feel able to. So headline finding activity hasn't changed that much. But under the surface, it seems like you're getting at quite a significant split here between European managers and US managers. Do you want to talk to that a little bit? Is that fair? Yeah, that's definitely fair. So European asset managers continue to outperform US peers. No US manager voted in favour of more than 60% of resolutions. The highest scoring US manager is Northern Trust Asset Management, and they were placed 34th in the ranking. And almost every asset manager in the top half of the ranking is European. I think the relative strength of European managers was also noted in our 2020 and 2019 assessments as well where yeah, European asset managers similarly just dominated the leaderboard and also our separate 2020 ranking of asset managers, which looked at their policies and practices more widely beyond voting, found a similar trend as well. So we think that it's most likely the stronger legislative environment in Europe that is the driver of this stronger performance from European asset managers. There's a number of developments that have taken place across the last proxy season that may impact how these managers perform. Legislation in Europe has strengthened with the shareholder rights directive, for example, coming into force in September 2020. And this directive requires asset managers to develop and publicly disclose an engagement policy that explains how they integrate social and environmental factors into their investment strategy. There's also been some developments in the US. So, for example, in April last year, the US climate envoy John Kerry said that the nation would likely join Europe in mandating financial institutions and companies to disclose climate change risks. And he also stated intentions to work with European leaders to harmonize disclosure standards. But so far, these policy signals from the administration do not yet appear to have translated into tougher voting by US asset managers who, as you say, on the whole, continue to lag behind European peers. Is it possible things like the stewardship code in the UK as well, kind of focusing the minds of managers on things like that? And I suppose more broadly, SDR, TCFD, all these sort of things are being picked up more in Europe and probably probably focuses the mind, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Before you mentioned, I mean, the points around policy, having policies themselves is a very good one. Before you mentioned that, I was about to play devil's advocate, so I'll say it anyway, but you probably already gave the answer. I was just wondering whether if you'd asked a US manager why they underperformed the European region, they would say, well, we're just more critical of these resolutions. We're thinking harder about whether they're the right thing to do. We're not just indiscriminately saying yes to everything. There is a point there, isn't there, that you don't necessarily want to see all managers trending to exactly 100% because you do want them to be thinking carefully about each time they vote. Do you have any thoughts? You mentioned that you'd asked managers to give their rationale for different votes. Was there any trend in the ones that the US managers were not choosing to support? 
that indicated anything like that? That's an interesting question. We didn't analyse too much in terms of the regional split between who provided us with rationales, because overall, there weren't that many who gave rationales for all of the resolutions that they voted on. So it would have been quite hard to do that analysis. But I think that could be something interesting to consider maybe in next year's analysis. That's a point that I've sort of picked up as well from talking to managers is kind of this question of what is the ideal percentage to be supporting? Maybe it's a little less than 100, but a lot more than where most managers are at the moment kind of thing. And I suppose, I guess what you're saying in the report is the first step is it would appear that some managers are not even engaging with the resolutions at all, not even necessarily thinking about them, which is, I suppose, something you're trying to change. And then secondly, to have a policy that allows managers to take thoughtful views on these things, which in a lot of cases involves supporting them. Exactly. Our recommendation would be that asset managers adopt a voting policy which states that they, by default, will vote in favour of all social and environmental resolutions, but it's kind of on a comply or explain basis. So if they decide that a certain resolution is not worth voting for, that's fine, but they need to be able to explain why. So to show that they have gone through that thinking process that you mentioned and given it sufficient consideration. Maybe it's just worth quickly noting what the nature of some of these resolutions are, because they're often not necessarily what people think, I suppose, in that a lot of the climate ones are simply around disclosures and targets and those sort of things. So it's just saying that the company should disclose the emissions in line with certain practices, should set targets in line with a certain practice, and should set up their governance in a way that sort of facilitates that, which is not particularly exactly on the leading edge, is it? So I suppose that's something that you would hope that most managers could get behind. Yeah, that's right. A lot of those resolutions are just focused on disclosures and asking for additional reporting. And actually, one thing that was really clear from our research was that resolutions focused on climate-related lobbying generally received a higher degree of support than other environmental resolutions. And I think that might be the case because those lobbying resolutions are usually quite disclosure-orientated, while other resolutions that might be more focused on strategy require more concerted action. So we saw quite an interesting gap there between more action versus disclosure-oriented resolutions. It will be really interesting to see how this plays out, won't it? Because if there's lots of resolutions that pass this year, last year, the year before, that encourage the same group of companies in many cases to disclose better, then you can picture in five years' time, there are very few companies left where you're going to lobby them to disclose because that's already something that they do. The resolutions will become a bit more focused on specific actions because that's the only thing left to kind of look to improve and the easy wins, if you like, have been done already. That's the hope. I think so far investors are generally still quite cautious when it comes to recommending a specific course of action. I gave the examples on the climate side, but it's something we very much see repeated on the social resolutions as well. I think maybe even more starkly, actually, so resolutions with a stronger focus on social action really struggle to achieve more than 30% of shareholder support. So, for example, none of the resolutions focused on decent working conditions receive majority support, which cover topics like assessing the feasibility of paying employees a living wage and protecting them from pay cuts. I think while access to better information and more detailed disclosures is obviously desirable, it shouldn't come at the expense of actual changes in corporate behaviour. And also, in many cases, investors already have a wealth of data to influence investee companies and help ensure the crises the world is facing are halted and reversed. And that includes requesting specific changes and improvements to companies' climate strategies and ensuring companies pay living wages and reduce the negative health impacts they have, particularly on vulnerable communities. And just asking for more reporting isn't sufficient. 
Yeah, it feels like it's a starting point, isn't it? It's kind of necessary, but not sufficient. But it's kind of interesting that, I mean, I know these filing of these resolutions is a hugely labor intensive process, lots of communications that have to go on to get a coalition of support to get it over the line. And so to be going through that process, even for some of what appears to be relatively basic disclosures, it's a lot, isn't it, to be going through just to get those over the line? Yeah, it really is. And I think maybe the fact that it is such a burdensome process is maybe also part of the reason why some of the resolutions might be softer touch or disclosure focused, because at least then the likelihood of success is a little bit higher and it'll be easier to garner wider support. Whereas if you make a very ambitious ask and have to go through all of that process and you already know from the outset that it's really unlikely to get a lot of support, I guess the whole process you have to go through is kind of a huge barrier to action if the impact might be quite limited. On that process, actually, just quickly, I suppose one thing that I've seen change from what I hear from managers is a few years ago, you'd hear a lot of managers say, look, we are engaging on this stuff. We didn't vote for that resolution because we engaged with management separately. We put forward an ask and they met our ask separately from the, which wasn't quite as stringent as the resolution, but was still pretty good. So we actually think we got a result there, yet we didn't vote for the resolution. That to me was quite a common thing you heard a few years ago. It feels like the world has changed quite a lot and that is no longer viewed as enough really because that does sound a bit like a cozy chat basically with the chairman or something it doesn't really sound like you're exercising the sort of accountability that that people would like to see here definitely but i think sadly it's something that is still happening so in the rationales that we analyzed a very common reason that investors cited for voting against a resolution is that they prefer to engage with the company privately instead of voting to me, it seems like quite a strange approach because what you ask for in your private engagement should be consistent with how you vote and the two are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, I think they should reinforce each other and sending mixed messages to companies can only be counterproductive, I think. And especially considering the urgency of the global environmental and inequality crises, asset managers need to set strong and consistent expectations right now. And I think soft touch engagement leading to slow incremental change is just not sufficient anymore. It does beg the question why it has to be in a private conversation, doesn't it? How are you actually positioning this, even if you're asking for vaguely the same sort of thing? It doesn't feel enough, does it? And it doesn't allow anyone to take a view of how good that is compared with others, whereas this sort of data is really good at being able to compare everyone. Obviously, the focus of today's chat is the voting analysis that you've done in the report. But you mentioned, of course, the form of those resolutions and actually the power of some of the ones that perhaps are currently less successful, but actually would lead to more positive change. Does ShareAction generally voice opinions on those sorts of things more broadly than this sort of report with the analysis and sort of help to pivot in the right direction in terms of the style of resolutions or is it slightly more at this stage just reporting on what's happening in the market and that puts it in the spotlight and that of course in itself encourages change. Maybe the other thing we do in terms of voting that's worth mentioning is that we, since last year, so this year will be the second time, but we publish an annual list of shareholder resolutions to watch that we think are particularly impactful and asset managers should pay particular attention to. So we'll be doing that again this year. We've actually just started working on it. We're hoping to publish it in early March and we'll keep updating it regularly throughout the proxy season as well. Very fantastic. Really good source then. Yeah, it's a really interesting document. I looked through that last year. It's really interesting to know ahead of time what's sort of coming and what you think the key ones are, I think. One thing that stood out to me from the work you've done is just how big some of these big asset managers are, particularly the big three, what you call the big three passive managers, which I think is BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard. Their share ownership of most companies in the world is really, really big. And certainly between the three of them is a huge chunk. And there's a really interesting picture in the report where you show how many resolutions could have got over the line if just one or two of those three supported them. It's a really huge number. And it's things like 
climate lobbying at Chevron, health at Altria, diversity at City, at Abbott Laboratories, Procter & Gamble diversity. There's so many where it was just came up a little bit short. And one of those three could have put it over the edge and not even trying to go down the road of saying what's right and what's wrong. But just the level of influence that these managers have is absolutely huge, isn't it, today? I love that chart. I thought that was so fascinating. Really good piece of analysis. Yeah, I think we did a similar chart last year as well. And every year, it's just always one of the findings that gets most of the attention. And yeah, it's just staggering numbers. I mean, it's almost hard to even imagine it, but they combined account for 20 trillion US dollars in assets under management, which is just a bit mind boggling. It's quite worrying to see that in many cases so far, they are not yet using the potential influence that they could have on corporate behavior. That's the point, I think, isn't it? That's exactly the point. A huge influence that's there and it's not always being used or it's often not being used. Really interested. I mean, we've just talked about the power of those big three. Really interested in the reactions that you've had to this report. I mean, have you had engagement from those big three or from other investment managers? I'd say overall, the response has been quite positive. For example, we've heard from several asset owners that they will use our research in their engagement with asset managers, which is exactly what we intended it to be used for. In terms of asset managers, we've had some feedback. So one piece of feedback is the one that I think we've already discussed a little bit in terms of whether it's actually worth supporting every single resolution that was included in our sample. And We'd probably argue that ideally, yes, we would want to see 100% for votes. But if there is a certain resolution that an asset manager doesn't believe is worth voting for, then it's really important that they publish a rationale and explain how they got to that conclusion. And then another slight pushback, I guess, that we sometimes get is around, well, I guess related to the fact that also we already discussed about doing private engagement. But often we hear that asset managers believe that a certain company is already taking action and that therefore they don't need to vote in favour of a certain resolution. But our concern then would be the fact that a company is doing something does not mean that they're necessarily doing enough. So in many cases, that didn't necessarily feel like a good argument. And if it formalises something they already do, what was the harm in voting for the resolution anyway? Exactly. And maybe looking forward, you've mentioned, of course, the list of votes to look out for this year. Is there any other sort of big pieces of research that you're looking to cover in the next year that we should be looking out for? We've got quite a busy year coming up. First of all, we're definitely planning to repeat our voting analysis. So look out for a similar report to the one we've just discussed at the end of this year. And then, yeah, like we said, sooner than that, though, we're planning on publishing that list of key resolutions, which will be in early March. And then another big piece of work for us this year will be a broader benchmarking exercise of the asset management industry, similar to the Point of No Return series we published in 2020, which some listeners might be familiar with. We will be assessing and ranking the world's largest asset managers based on their performance on climate change, biodiversity and human rights and some governance related indicators as well. I think this is always quite an exciting piece of work that's been having a tremendous impact within the industry. And as with all of our benchmarks, there will, of course, be a public element to it. But we're also going to produce tailored feedback documents for each surveyed institution with personalized recommendations and then have one-to-one conversations with the institutions too. So this is going to be quite a big project for us this year that we're looking forward to. And then maybe worth mentioning as well, beyond the asset management space, we'll also be working on the third edition of our benchmark for the European banking sector covering climate change and biodiversity this year. So yeah, it's a busy year ahead. I think 
a key theme throughout will be focusing on short to medium term targets and actions. So last year felt like the year of net zero commitments. And so one thing we're really keen to drill into this year is around the actions asset managers and banks are taking today to ensure that they can achieve those longer term net zero targets. The benchmarking sounds very powerful and the dual approach of having the private, more detailed feedback, definitely powerful. I mean, we've definitely talked a lot internally at LCP. We've talked on the podcast before, actually. It's all very well setting a fairly long term net zero target. But what are you doing today? What's that pathway? And do you have checkpoints along that journey? So, yeah, look forward to seeing that, too. The benchmarking is really powerful, isn't it? Because given that you're doing this every year, it means that the clients, investors can go to their asset manager and say, look, where are you going to be this time next year on this measure sort of thing? Because I think in the past, managers can always point to a couple of good examples and get investors comfortable they're doing stuff. But if they got a very low percentage of support, then I think it's the right question to ask is to say, well, where do you want to be next year? Where are you going to be? And that gives you some really relatively quick feedback to be able to see if they are sort of being able to make those changes that they're talking about. Exactly. And then to follow up as well, if they don't end up where they said they were hoping to be to find out why they didn't and what needs to change. You get into some really interesting conversations, which you just wouldn't otherwise, in terms of what are these resolutions actually about? What was the policies that were driving the decision? What was the thought process? Was there a thought process? Who was taking it? How big is the team? How well resourced are they? All those things sort of matter. And you get into that pretty quickly once you start digging into it, I think. Absolutely. Sonia, there was one final area that I was keen to just have a very quick comment from you on, which is implementation statements. So just for listeners that are less familiar, this is a requirement for UK pension schemes to put a statement in with their report and accounts every year, which talks about how they've implemented their policies in relation to the issues we've been talking about today, really, in terms of environmental, social and governance issues, but particularly the way that they've engaged with managers on those and also details of the votes that the managers have taken on their behalf. 20, 30 seconds gut feel from you, really keen to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think a key thing for us is that implementation statements should set out how they chose to approach the savers' interests. So, This will help ensure that the implementation statement is written with the member audience in mind, but it will also inform trustees' approach to stewardship and ensure that it's linked to the consideration of what is in the interest of the members of the particular scheme, as opposed to it being the stewardship activity that asset manager happened to be doing or stewardship initiative that was easiest for the scheme to join. And we also think that this should work in two ways, so not only explain why or how schemes took climate positive actions or decisions, but also in cases where schemes continue to invest in companies or activities misaligned with climate goals to explain why that is in members' best interests as well. It feels like it's a step from where a lot of schemes are right now, I suppose, but those seem to be exactly the right things. And I guess when I look at implementation statements, I'm left with this feeling that they could be so good and they're just not living up to what they could do right now. And as part of that, I think, is they lack this wider benchmarking piece, which is what you've done. So there's some quite good data that most schemes can get their hands on in terms of how their managers voted. But it does often lack the kind of, well, what does a good percentage look like? How does this compare to others type thing? And so I would love to see it somehow extend or develop or evolve to incorporate some of the work that you've done there, because that just makes it so much clearer what you should take away from those stats, I think. And actually your comment around, I mean, it's almost the not quite comply or explain, is it? But the kind of making comments on both what you've done positively and what you've not done to show that it was conscious. Again, that moves it away from feeling too much like a tick box exercise and really encourages trustees to think in a lot of depth about it. And yeah, to really explain why it's in members' interest as well that you took a certain decision. So Sonia, we've come to the end of today's discussion. Really keen to hear from you what the one thing is that you'd like listeners to take away from today. 
The key point is that many of the world's largest asset managers still need to step up their game when it comes to voting on some of these key shareholder resolutions. And so I'd encourage listeners to think about how they can help make this happen within their own spheres of influence. So if you're working for an asset management firm, push for this change internally. If you're working for a pension fund, check your asset manager's voting record, etc. And hopefully in this year's analysis, we'll see a more marked improvement compared to last year. Absolutely. Great. Looking forward to it. And Sonia, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about this whole area? I think most investors probably first look at potential returns when considering a new investment. Not so much the opportunity to drive behavioral change via active ownership. And our research obviously shows that it's a really underused practice still, yet one that's most critical to resolve systemic ESG crises. So yeah, I'd say that Active ownership is probably the most underappreciated thing in terms of the potentially huge impact it could have, if done well, on helping us solve the biggest challenges we're facing today. Excellent. I like that one. And Sonia, final question from me. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Yeah, I should probably mention the Outrage and Optimism podcast, which is a weekly podcast that covers climate-related news. They always tend to have really interesting guests and it's co-hosted by Christiana Figueres and Paul Dickinson, who's the chair of Share Action. But then also I've just seen there's a new book that was published only last week. So I haven't actually read it yet, but it's called Share Power by Marion Somerset Webb. And it looks at how ordinary people can use their investments to change the way that capitalism works. So that sounds really relevant and really exciting. And yeah, it's definitely on my reading list. Sadly, I never really get as much time to read that kind of stuff as I would like to, but hopefully I'll make it to this one. Brilliant. We'll share the link to our readers and hopefully they can give us the recommendation back when they've read it. Nice one. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for your time today. Been a great conversation. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sonia. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Join us again next week for another episode. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.